Jewish audio on Chabad.org. Today we are going to finish the second chapter of the Megillah. And the plot's going to thicken. And we're going to start to see how the story unfolds before our very eyes. Chapter 20, uh, 2, verse 21. We'll start with Pshat, of course. The first thing we want to know is, what is the Megillah saying on a literal level? And then after we understand what the Megillah is saying to us on its literal level, then we'll start to peel away the layers. As King Solomon metaphorized the Torah, apples of gold wrapped in silver filigree. Right? You have to take off one layer, take off another layer, take off a third layer, and you begin to appreciate the incredible profundity that's being conveyed to us. By Yomim Ohem. So it was in those days. Mordechai Yoshev B'Sha'ar HaMelech. Mordechai is now in a new position. He occupies um, a, a very important office. He sits B'Sha'ar HaMelech in the king's gate. In today's day and age, maybe that means he's a senator, or he's somebody important now. And he's somebody who is known to the monarchy. So in those days, Kotzaf Big Son Vaseresh. There was a fellow named Bigton, or Big Son, another fellow named Teresh. And these were Shnei Sarisei Hamelech. They were two of the king's chamberlains. Mishaymri Hasaf. They were the ones who were at the entrance. We're talking about the guards who occupied the inner sanctum, the inner sacred space around the king, the people who the king really trusts. They sought to, and I'll translate literally, to send a hand, that's the literal meaning, to lay a hand, on the king, on Ahasuerus. So Rashi's uh, first order of business is just to explain the literal meaning of these words. By Yom Mehem, we know what that means. We can imagine that if you're sitting in the king's, uh, so to speak, entranceway, that you're an important person. Big Son and Teresh are two important people, or they have an important job. They're Meshavri Asaf. They're very trusted. The one thing we don't know with clarity is what does it mean to shloch yad? What does it mean to lay a hand? What does that mean? So therefore, Rashi explains. He says, to lay a hand is a euphemism. It means that they sought lahashkoso sam hamavet. They sought to poison him. Literally, they wanted to, to give him a drink that was poisonous. The Ibn Ezra explains the notion of mishomre hasaf. Ibn Ezra doesn't feel that's so easy to understand. So he says, mishomre hasaf means bechatsar hapnimit, the inner courtyard. So we're talking the area immediately around the king. The Pasuk doesn't mention why they got angry. The Pasuk doesn't mention How did Mordechai find out what their plot was? How did he know that they were angry? On a literal level, this is not necessarily relevant to us. Here's the story that happened. There were two people who were trusted advisors or trusted guards, people who were very close to Achashverosh. You don't just allow anybody in to your inner circle. These people had access. They had what we talk in today's day and age, security clearance, the highest level of security clearance. And, and they plotted against Achashverosh, and Mordechai found out about it. 
Ibn Ezra says that there are those who say that Mordechai was from the Sanhedrin. And because he was from the Sanhedrin, he spoke all of the languages of the time. And the magic number is 70. 70 proverbial languages. Why did the Sanhedrin have to speak all languages? Because when justices and the Jewish Supreme Court are going to hear testimony, they have to hear the testimony from the person themselves, from the witness themselves. They cannot hear it through an interpreter. Because stuff gets lost in translation. And if they have to be able to render judgment, they have to be able to understand, or at least have some sort of fluency. If they can't speak it, they have to be able to understand the language. So therefore, Mordechai speaks all these language, languages. And they didn't realize that Mordechai spoke the language. And they, they were, we would soon see, from a place called Tarsus, which is somewhere between uh, Asia Minor and Syria. And, and because they were from this place and they spoke this language, and Mordechai understood that, that language. So therefore, they were unafraid to speak in their own language without realizing that the Jew actually could understand, and he conveys the message. So this is, on, on, on a simple shot level, that's the story. So what? So what? That's, that's the story that happened. The story that happened is that they plotted against the king. Mordechai found out about this. He tells the queen Esther. So Esther conveys the news, the message, the warning in the name of Mordechai. And in fact, they investigate, and it is so. And these people are tried, and they're, they're, uh, they're killed for treason. So let's take a, a deeper look now at this Pasuk. We're going to start uh, first by seeing the words of the Medrash Shabbat. The Medrash Shabbat says, That it's, it's like a miracle. It was, it was not a, an expected thing that servants should be angry at their master and should want to kill their master. Let's talk about it in simple terms. Kings are generally suspicious people. They don't allow anybody around them. They have security. So who are the people that are, are really right there? Mishom Hasaf, the last person that you get into the door. They're the people that the king trusts. Even in today's day and age, presidents and prime ministers have heavy security around them. But the people who literally accompany them, walk with them from one place to the next, are generally not required to go through a metal detector. And they're not required to have any security clearance. Why? Why? Because he's the king's personal bodyguard. These are the people who are standing right around the king. If you can't trust these people, who can you trust? So you have people who are very trustworthy. And yet we see, God makes this happen. So that a miracle will happen for the righteous. Umano, and who is the tzaddik? Says the Medrash Rabbah, Mordechai. As it is written, that Mordechai found out about this. So the reason that this happened was so Mordechai should find out, so that Mordechai should convey the message, so that Achashverosh's life should be saved through Mordechai. That's what the Medrash Rabbah says. That's, that's how this Pasuk makes sense. What's, what's bothering the Medrash? Because the Pasuk says, in those days, Mordechai is sitting at the entranceway to the king's palace. So what is the connection of that, that part with Kotzav, Big Son, Vesedish? What, what, what is the relevance of that? 
In any way, it, it could have said the Pasuk that uh, Mordechai was Yoshev B'Shar Melech. Well, actually, it does say the Pasuk. In verse 19, it says, Umardecha Yoshev B'Shar Melech. So now, it's verse 21, I was saying again, in those days when Mordechai was sitting B'Shar Melech, really, it just should have said, Bayomim Ahim cuts off Big Son Vesedosh. But, but since the Medrash, Medrash understands that the Pasuk is construed in a way that we talk about Mordechai being there, and we talk about the plot of Big Son Vesedosh, that there must be some sort of connection between the plotting of these individuals against the king's life and Mordechai being there. So the Medrash says it has to be that God did this in order to bring about a miracle for Mordechai. It's not where you expect something like that to happen from. Then the Medrash says, Dover Acher. The Medrash says there's another approach here. And the other approach is that the reason that they plotted against King Ahasuerus was because of Mordechai. Namely, pardon me. And what were they angry about? Because Mordechai took their job away. And instead of them being the trusted individuals there, now the Jew got the position. So they got very angry. So they figured, we're not going to get rid of the Jew. We're going to get rid of the source of all the problems. Who is? Achashverosh. So they plot against Achashverosh. So now we understand, the Medrash explains this in a little bit of a different way. The Mordechai is the cause of that anger. The truth is that these two interpretations are not necessarily mutually exclusive. One bleeds into the other. And, and, and the point that's being made here is, it's all part of the story. In the Likute Ansheshem, which I think I mentioned this in the last class, but it, 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 it bears mentioning again, it says that we learn, we learn in the Yalkut that Esther tried to influence Ahasuerus to appoint Mordechai to a position of greatness. And she said, look, your last advisors didn't do such a very good job for you. You ended up a widower. Why don't you have a good Jewish advisor? All famous kings used to do that. And Ahasuerus said, really, that's a, that's a great idea. He says, um, do you know anybody? Do you know anybody, a Jew I can trust? Yehudi kasher, as the expression goes here. I know, I know a kosher person. He's very much ready for this job, prepared for it. Tzaddik, he's a holy, he's a righteous person. Ushmo Mordechai. So Ahasuerus immediately sends for Mordechai and puts him Bashar Melech. And this is how, in the end, Ahasuerus is saved from Big Son and Seresh. So there's, there's a little bit of, uh, one thing is leading into the next. Before we go, before we further develop this idea, I want to share with you a little more of the details of, of how this all happens. The, 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 some want to suggest, the only gun want to suggest from, from the Medrash, that the continuation of the story is, since Ahasuerus was giving all of the different nations a break on the taxes, and since he was giving them gifts, what were we going to give to the Jews? The Jews didn't have a country at the time. The Jews, for the most part, were not living in Israel. But he wanted to reward all nationalities. Right? He's covering all his bases. So he had to do something for the Jews. So what did he do for the Jews? So he appointed Mordechai. And that way he felt that he covered all his bases. The Jews got something special too. They got a special favor that now one of their prominent leaders would have a place amongst the royal dignitaries. According to the Gemara, the anger was sparked not by Mordechai, but by Esther. 
The big son of Sarah said, ever since this queen has come, we don't get a wink of sleep all night. Achashverosh is busy all night, and he keeps demanding new, new drinks. So he said, we didn't get to sleep. And therefore, they were very frustrated about the situation. And as a result of that, they decided that they were going to assassinate HaMelech HaChashverosh. What do we see from this? We see from this that, that the story of the plot is brought about through Mordechai, through Esther, or that at the time when all of this is happening, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Almighty God, makes what Mordechai is appointed to a position of prominence, that that's when Big Son and Teresh begin to have their plot against Achashverosh. So, they, the Alshech, he strings it all together. He said, this is every single detail here links one into the other. It's all a domino effect. And he says, you have to understand that HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Almighty God, prepared everything that was going on. The Jewish people had to go back to Eretz Yisrael. The time of the seven years of Babylon was coming to an end. They weren't ready to go home. They were assimilating at an alarming rate. And they needed to do the tshuva. So Almighty God plus puts this in place after the sin of participating in the Feast of Achashvesh, which we learned about in the beginning of the series. So now the Jewish people are going to be faced with a terrible enemy whose name is Haman, and with a genocidal reality. And that's going to force the Jewish people to do tshuva. And when they do tshuva, then they're going to return to Eretz Yisrael and they're going to receive the second base on Mikdash. There's going to be a genocidal plot, but there has to be a solution before there's going to be a problem. Because as the Gemara says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu makdim lamaka, that the healing is prepared before the assault. And in this way, he says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Almighty God, prepares that before even Haman rises to greatness, and Haman is the person who's going to pressure the Jewish people, and he's the one who's going to bring about this wave of tshuva, that before all that happens, Queen Esther is appointed. Queen Esther ultimately ensures that Mordechai is appointed. A plot is hatched against the king because of Esther, because of Mordechai, whichever way you want to look at it. But all, all of the, the pieces are inter, they, they link one into the other. It's all interlocking. And then there's going to be Mordechai saving the king. The king, uncharacteristically, will not do anything about it because usually he, he knew how to show appreciation. Instead, it will be recorded. And then in the end, when the Jewish people do tshuva and we're ready for the miracle, then all of these things will become activated. But everything is already in place. The, the Malbim actually has a, a very a long description of this. And the Malbim says that, that uh, this, is, this is the perfect example, he says, of HaKadosh Baruch Hu Maktim Maka. He gives an example. He said, when somebody goes into surgery, so they prepare the stitches and the bandages before they make the cut. You don't first open the person and say, uh-oh, how are we going to close them up? He said, there's going to be some, a painful thing happening, but before all of that begins, we have to have a solution in place. And he said, this is what HaKadosh Baruch Hu did. Why does the Megillah begin by telling us that Marucha Yoshev B'Sha'ar HaMelech? For two reasons. He says, because number one, that's what causes the ire and the jealousy, as we learned, as Medrash tells us. And he says, also paraphrasing from the Medrash Shabbat, it's Mordechai, who the Jewish people thought was the big troublemaker. 
the Jewish people said that we're going to provoke the king's anger. And the king is going to punish us if we don't go to his party. And Mordechai said our loyalty goes to God first. And they said people like you endanger the entire nation. They bring about bad things for our people. So Almighty God shows us that not only does nothing bad happen because of Mordechai, but on the contrary, it is Mordechai in the end, the Jew who remains loyal, who is appointed to the position of royal favor. And it is he, Mordechai, who becomes the catalyst for the future redemption. Not only on the spiritual level, not only because he inspires Jewish people to do tshuva and because he awakens their hearts to God, which brings about a miracle, a reciprocal reaction from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, from Almighty God, but because even in the pieces of the puzzle that later have to come together to provide the miracle, Mordechai is not the trouble, Mordechai is the salvation. He doesn't make it difficult, he lays the foundation for the Jewish people's being saved. And the Malvum emphasizes how extraordinary a situation this is. I touched on it before when I mentioned the words of the Medrash. He says, these are the people that you would trust more so than anybody else. And he says, furthermore, who usually makes a coup? Who usually overthrows the king? The president, a dictator. Who overthrows people like this? Somebody who has his eye on the position or a number of people who are going to share the power. So that's how a coup comes, a military coup. So the military is going to occupy the position of government. It's, 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 a, it's the opposition, the opposition in government, so the opposition rigs this, this, this revolution so that instead they can come and occupy the place of the king. Big son of Seresh, they're just like guards who sit in the front. What are they going to get out of this? What are they going to have from this? They're not becoming the king afterwards. We don't even see that there's any sort of connection between like a, like a long-term plan. What were, they, what were they thinking? They killed the king, and then? Well, then we got rid of our problem. So it wasn't the normative situation where, where, where a king is concerned that the people around him are trying to hurt him. The king had nothing to fear from these people because they could only gain from him being in power. If you kill the king, who knows if the next king is going to give you a job? Usually, whoever the first king trusted, if the king is deposed, the new king or the new monarch is not necessarily going to trust these people. On the contrary, clear house. So they, they, have, they have every reason to lose, and they stand nothing to gain. Furthermore, the, furthermore, the points out that it doesn't say, katsfu. It doesn't say that they got angry. It says, katsaf, which is singular. So he says, one fellow had this idea, presumably big son. And Big Son convinced Seresh. And Seresh, first of all, a person who's playing around with a king who has no problem loping his wife's head off or having her hanged, is, he's not a guy to, to start up with. So you know when you're going to talk to somebody else and say, maybe we should get rid of him, he'll say, you must be crazy. And he can become a hero now because all he needs to run to the king, he says, hey, Achashverosh, me, Teresh, I'm the hero. Big Son wants to kill you. And then Teresh would actually stand to gain something. But instead, Big Son hatches a plot with Teresh. He is the one who's angry. What is, Teresh not only has nothing to gain from it, he's not even angry. He's not even the one whose frustration reaches the boiling over point. And yet, he convinces Teresh, and, because, and now Teresh is ready to, to participate in the plot, and together, they're going to assassinate King Ahasuerus. So, when you, when you think about it, you start to peel away the layers, you see really how remarkable the story is, and you see how this is the Yad Hashem, 
hand of God, this is the miracle of Purim. But if you don't read the Megillah in order, you don't see the miracle. You don't see the domino effect of one into the next. Now, the, the Targum tells us some interesting things about how, how did he plan to kill him anyway? What, 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 what did they have in mind? So the Targum says, the regular Targum tells us, Amru la'ashka sama demosa. That they said, let's, let's give him a poisonous drink, which is kind of, you know, what Rashi says. La'ashka sama mabas. But the Targum also adds, le'miktale besayifa, that they wanted to kill him with a sword, with a dagger. So the Targum adds that in. And in the Targum Sheni, it says that they planned to put a poisonous snake into his cup. So that when he would drink, the poisonous snake would jump out at him and would bite him. And once there's a poisonous snake in your hands, you're really, you're out of luck. There's nothing else you can do. The, the, the Medrash tells us that they actually found the snake before. And, and God miraculously made a new snake appear. And that they had a, a backup plan. That in case the snake wouldn't work, they had a dagger with them too. <laughs> but in the end, they were caught with the contraband. They were caught with the snake. And they were caught with the dagger. That's what it says. You see later, it says the words that they found them, that they found them with the material they were using to kill Achashverosh. Yosifon says that these sentries were whispering and plotting to behead the king. That's really what, and the Medrash does say Besaifa. Maybe they wanted to have him bitten by a poisonous snake and thusly incapacitated, then you could easily kill him, you could behead him. And, and, and Yosifan says that they planned to remove his head and send it to the kings of Greece, Malchi Yavon, because that was the next up-and-coming empire. And ultimately, the Persian Empire crumbles. Who replaces the Persian Empire? The Greek Empire. Alexander the Great is the next mighty monarch we hear about um, two centuries later. But already the Greek kings were plotting. Alexander was originally just the son of the king of Macedonia, which was a small province in Greece. And that was where Ahasuerus' trouble was going to be brewing from. So big son of Sheresh were planning to send Ahasuerus' head off to them. And in that way, there would, uh, the wars that were brewing between Persia and Greece would be thrown into uh, a state of, 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 of extreme turmoil. It's like throwing uh, fat on a fire. And in the end, the Persian Empire would, be, would, would collapse. It's very difficult to understand what would motivate them to do this. It's true, we'll find it there from Tarsus. And Tarsus maybe is not Persia, but like, you have a good job. You get job security, you're with the king, he trusts you, you're in, you're in, the, inner, you're in the inner circle. Why get involved in global affairs? What do, you, what, what, what do you stand to gain at a personal level from having empires war with each other and, and having in the end a change of, 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 of guard, a change of monarchy? Really, where's the motivation for this? And, and the simple answer is, there isn't motivation. This is not the typical story of where people plot to assassinate the king. You wouldn't know that. But when you learn it, you find out this is not what you think it is. And that, that's all the more what makes it so miraculous. All right, so now we have a little bit of an understanding of what happened over here. And verse 22 tells us, Vayivada hadavar l'mardachai. Mardachai discovered this. How did, how did Mordechai discover this? Rashi tells us, They were speaking in front of him. They were comfortable speaking in front of him because they spoke Lashon Tarsi, which I guess we would call Tarsian, the language of people from Tarsus. Tarsus just show up in somebody else's Bible <laughs> much later on. 
Paris has become a famous place. Some maintain that it's one of the world's oldest municipalities, that the area of Tarsus has had people living there ever since the beginning, from the Mesopotamian times. The Ein Yodim, they didn't know Shemardachai Makir Beshivim Lashonas. The Mardachai was familiar. It doesn't say he spoke it fluently. He was familiar with 70 languages. Shehoyo Meyoshvei Lishkat Hagazit, because he was one of the sitters in the Hewn Chamber, which means that Mardachai was a member of the Sanhedrin who sat in the Beit HaMikdash in an office which is called Hewn Stone, which was actually adjacent to the Beit HaMikdash itself. And to be in the Sanhedrin, you had to be an extraordinarily wise person. And you had to be, as we learned, learned in languages. And Mordechai was already in the Sanhedrin at the time when the first base Amigash was destroyed. So he may not be the leader of the Jewish people at the time. Maybe he was 25, maybe he was 30, maybe he was 40 years old. I don't know how old he was at the time. But he had to have been already an accomplished person. He goes into Galut, as we learned. As we learned, there's an opinion that he went back to Israel. Then he left again. And he comes back into the Galut to be with his people. And now he's a senior states, statesperson. The, the Targum says Esther was 75. If Mordechai adopted her or raised her, he had to be, I don't know, at, at least uh, a good number of years older than her. So you have to figure that Mordechai is no young man. He's no young man. He's well over 100 years old at this time, or maybe 110 years old. People may have lived very long. It won't be the first story in the Bible of somebody who has a, an extraordinarily long life. I... I I cannot explain that to you. That's what the Targum says. <laughs> the Targum says that when it says that Esther was, was so quiet, it says that Esther observed a remarkable level of modesty that nobody had seen her. She, was, she didn't go outside of her house for 75 years, which has to mean she's at least 75 years old. Now, how Achashverosh fell for a woman who's 75, this is all beyond me. That, that, that just adds to the extraordinary nature of this miracle. Unless... Years were very different then. I don't, I don't know. So that's what Rashi says. That's, that's how, and it's, it's interesting. Ibn Ezra says it on verse 21. Rashi says it on verse 22 because he's explaining, Ibn Ezra kind of more focuses on, uh, on the bigger picture here. Rashi is explaining words. L'shloach yad, explains the meaning of l'shloach yad. Vayivada hadavar, he explains vayivada hadavar. It's interesting that in the, pas, the, the Targum Sheni, it says that Mordechai became aware of this, the Ruach Kudshel Mordechai, became the Holy Spirit. He had intuition. It's interesting. We don't, we don't talk about Mordechai speaking the languages, but rather it was a miracle that this was conveyed to Mordechai. So Esther receives the message from Mordechai. How does Esther receive the message from Mordechai? Does Mordechai ever directly speak to her? The answer to that is no. We learned about that already. It would be very suspicious. Mordechai is always speaking through an intermediary. So through an intermediary, Mordechai informs Esther that they're trying to, they're trying to kill him. That's what the Medrash Lekach Tov says. And despite the fact that Esther doesn't hear it from Mordechai, she conveys it to Achashverosh b'shem Mordechai in the name of Mordechai. And this, this is really going to get very, very interesting now. The Gemara Megillah says, sees this as extraordinary. B'Shem Mordechai, says the Gemara, Kal HaOver, Omer Dover, B'Shem Omro, anybody who says something in the name of whoever said it, the name of its author, maybe Geula La'olam, brings redemption to the world. Why, says the Gemara Megillah? Batomer Esther La'Melech B'Shem Mordechai. Esther says 
the, this, this brings this piece of news in the name of Mordechai, and in the end, Geula, redemption ensues as a result. So let's, take, let's step back here for a second, and let's try to understand what's, 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 what's happening here. The Megillah emphasizes very clearly two things. Number one, that Mordechai, after discovering the information, he wanted to make sure Achashver should find out the information. Number two, that the, how the information gets there. It gets there through Esther in the name of Mordechai. So the first things first. Why does, why does Mordechai want to get involved there anyway? Why is he, why is he defending Achashverosh? Achashverosh is a man who has a great enmity for the Jewish people, who wore the clothing of the Kohen Gadol during his great party, who made a mockery of the Jewish people by using the sacred artifacts of the Beit HaMikdash at his party, who forced the Jewish people to come to the party on Shabbat and without forcing them, got them all to assimilate. He offered them kosher food and in the end they were benignly pressured and they caved in and they ate the non-kosher food as well. And there was all kinds of other interesting things going on which were beyond the pale of morality and decency during this party, which many Jewish people slipped and they sinned. Why does Mordechai want to save him? He's a terrible guy. He rescinds the permission of building the base of Migdash. He's not saying yes. He doesn't allow them to build the base of Migdash. <laughs> the heck with him. He didn't do anything. He didn't, nobody knows that he overheard. He never has to tell anybody he overheard. Achashverosh took away his, uh, Esther. That wasn't a good thing. That was a terrible thing. And now I get rid of Achashverosh. Esther comes home and finished. I give you five reasons why Mordechai should just keep his mouth shut. The truth is, it's not so easy to understand. In the Medrash Panam Achedim, we're given three reasons for why Mordechai would want to save the king's life. Number one, Mordechai yearned to rebuild the base of Migdash. And he figured, if I save the king's life, I'll have an opportunity now to request a favor in return. Tit for tat. I saved your life, let us build a base on Megdash. Number two, Mordechai knew very well that the next king could be as bad or worse. Okay, so as bad or worse, maybe a little better. He says, yes. But now, if there'll be a decree, I have an opportunity maybe to influence the king. I have some capital to spend, some political capital. I, I saved the king's life. So therefore, this is a good thing to do. The next king, what does he need me for altogether? This king appointed me to a position, and now I will have saved his life. So Mordechai is thinking about his own welfare. He's not thinking about the welfare of his cousin Esther. What's he thinking about? About the Jewish people. Where can I be most effective for the Jewish people? This is a very important point to remember. Always to think about, the Mordechai teaches us, it's never about oneself. If I'm in a position, if I could be of assistance to Am Yisrael, then that's my first concern. And finally, Mordechai knows very well from Jewish history that if there's going to be a scapegoat, who's the scapegoat going to be? Unfortunately. <laughs> Unfortunately. You know, with the whole situation going now with Russia invading Ukraine, I don't, I don't, I don't know who to support. <laughs> Not that my support makes a difference. But here's my fear. Whatever will happen whenever things are bad, I know that the Jewish people need to be protected by Hashem. And we will be protected by Hashem. But this is historically. 
So Mordechai says, he doesn't know that I overheard. And he's thinking to himself, now what if somebody will say, didn't Mordechai know? What if, what if somebody will, sum, Mordechai sits over there. If he sits there, he should have known. And they'll say, he was neglectful. He wasn't on his guard. Whether that's reasonable or not is irrelevant. Because right? on a practical level, this is the concern of Mordechai. So those are three good reasons why Mordechai decided to make sure that the king would know about the plot against his life. So Esther, Esther tells it to the king, B'Shem Mordechai, in the name of Mordechai. Who made that decision? Important question. Who made the decision? If you look in the Pasuk, the verse says, it became known to Mordechai. So that's the first thing. Clause one. Second part of the sentence. He got the message to Esther. The third part of the sentence is that Esther tells it to the king in the name of Mordechai. We talked about this last week. And the Pasuk, that basically Esther was doing exactly what Mordechai said. Right? Remember we used the metaphor like a puppeteer? So Esther was getting instructions and she was doing what she was told to do. Did Mordechai say, tell it to the king in my name? No. So why did Esther say it in his name? Why did she volunteer that information? And interestingly enough, the Rebbe points out that there was two good reasons not to say it in Mordechai's name. Number one, if you hear a conspiracy theory in the name of a Jew, and you are a Gentile who is not favorably disposed to Jews, what's the first thing you're going to say? It's a Jewish plot. It's a Jewish plot. You know, Stalin Yomach the famous story of the doctor's plot, concocted a plot against the Jewish people. And people, the Russians, people bought into it. It was a plot. So Esther will come along and say, the Jew that we appointed, he, he says it's a conspiracy theory. Conspiracy theory? Yeah. The people who you trust with your life, they themselves, not only they're not protecting you, they're planning to, uh, to assassinate you. This could backfire. The king could fly into a rage, as we know he's prone to do, and who could he end up assassinating? or I should say executing, Mordechai. So it's not such a good idea to say to Mordechai's name. Number two, if Esther is getting special messages from Mordechai, now the king knows that there's some kind of relationship between Esther and Mordechai. That's not a good thing. Because now, if the king knows that there's a relationship between Mordechai and Esther, he may suspect her of disloyalty, which in fact is the case. <laughs> she remained loyal to Mordechai. <coughs> we learned that before. That's Mama Mordechai, Esther also, she's doing exactly what Mordechai tells her. As when, when she was faithful to him. And there is an opinion of the Gemara that Mordechai and Esther were actually married. And there is an opinion of the Gemara that they remained intimate, even afterwards. Even while this was going on. So if in fact the queen has other loyalties, which in fact she does have, and because of this, Mordechai doesn't speak to her directly. He sends it through a messenger. Esther should think 
The dumbest thing I can do is tell the king, oh, by the way, my dear king husband, there's this guy, we have, a, you know, we have some private stuff, we're texting all day. And the king says, what? You're texting with who? Wow, what's going on over here? You know, we have to look into this. There must be some kind of relationship. Oh, there is a relationship. Remember, Esther is the phantom of the palace. Nobody knows where she comes from. But in fact, she came from Mordecai's house. So if the king finds out that she came from Mordecai's house, it won't be such a big stretch until she finds out that she's Jewish. And we learned already, that's something that they didn't want to happen. So we have many good reasons for Esther not telling Ahasuerus this news, this information in Mordechai's name. And in that case, why does she? Why does she? So I want you to ask a different question. If Mordechai, according to the Medrash, Panamachedim was so concerned that maybe through conveying this information something good could happen for the Jewish people, that maybe he could rebuild the base of or maybe they'll have the ability to repeal a decree, or maybe that he'll be, he'll be held guilty anyway. So why would a Mordechai send a message directly to the king? He could send a message to the queen, send a message to the king. So, so the Al-Sheikh says, you see an amazing thing happening over here. Who was Mordechai always thinking of? He was thinking of Esther's welfare. And who was Esther always thinking of? Mordechai's welfare. Why did he, the Yagid Lester Amalka, says the Rabbi Al-Sheikh, Lehetiv law, so she should look good. He knows that being the wife of the king is not a secure position. The last wife didn't live to tell the tale. So now, she should find favor. Mordechai actually wanted Esther to say it over in, in her own name. When Mordechai saw, Esther saw, such affection for Mordechai, that he was so concerned, that he was ready to lose his own brownie points to make her look good, so what did she automatically do? She also behaved in a benevolent way. She said, Mordechai wants me to look good, I want him to look good. And that's why she went out of her way. And in the end, a wonderful thing happens from this. So the Gemara tells us in Megillah, and the Mishnah talks about it in Mesechus Ovis, that it says, <coughs> in the sixth chapter of Mesechus Ovis, in the sixth Mishnah, it says that we learn Anybody who repeats something or relays something in the name of its original source, maybe Gula La'ilam, and the Medrash, and the Mishnah says, and it's Adva Halacha, which is speaking about words of Torah, Vatomer Esther B'Shem Mardachai. What's the proof? That Esther says it in the name of Mardachai. So, let me ask you a little silly question. We have this notion that when you say words of Torah, you have to say it in the name of the source. Words of Torah. How do you know it? Because Esther repeated a plot about the assassination of the king in the name of the person who heard it from the would-be murderers, the would-be uh, assassinators. How, how does that teach me that when I say over something in learning that I should say it over somebody else's name? What is the connection here? How, how, is, how is Esther's behavior a template for our behavior? How is that teaching us what to do. And on the contrary, if you, if you really think about it, it flies in the face of Esther's perfect loyalty to Mordechai. She should do exactly as she's told. That was the greatness of Esther. 
that she never lost her loyalty. So why didn't she just follow instructions? There's, there's, there's something here that needs to be better explained. The Malbim in his commentary, when he talks about this notion of Esther telling it in the, in the name of, of Achashverosh, so he kind of like a It's almost like he kind of suggests that Esther saw this like the hand of Hashem. And therefore, she said, it's like, it's too compelling that Mordechai of all people should hear this. If Mordechai is the one who heard this, there's got to be a divine plan. She was like looking for the Hashgach Pratis. He said, if Hashem made it, that it should come from him, it's probably because somehow this will be useful to the Jewish people in the future. And she like was on the same page as Mordechai. She was like, just like Mordechai was thinking that favors to come to the Jewish people, Esther thought the same way. Regardless of the fact that Mordechai was concerned, like the Alshul says, to make Esther look good, but she was thinking, therefore, I have to tell this in, in his name. But it's very interesting that she does change from the approach till now, which was to follow only what Mordechai says. So, so here we really come upon a very, very important thing. Very, very important concept. The Jewish people, if we are to fulfill our destiny, our mission on the face of earth, what, what should we yearn to do? What, what, what's, what's the hope, the wish, God sends me down here for 70, 80, 90 years, whatever amount of time we're going to spend here on earth, that what should we be doing during the time that we spend here? Mitzvot. Mitzvot. Let's put it in a more generic term. What, what should we hope for? That I'm going to make the most money, that I'll live the nicest home, that I have the fastest car, the most beautiful wardrobe, the most uh, opulent jewelry. What should a Jew hope for? What do, what do we hope to do here an Olam Haza Hagashmi for our sojourn in, in this terrestrial earth. To listen to God. To do what God wants. When we get to Torah, what's the first thing we said? You want the Torah? Nasa. We're going to be obedient. You're right to help one another. Why? Because it feels good. So for you, it feels good to help one another. And for somebody else, it feels good to be mean to one another. So can we follow our own intuition? Can we just do the way it feels to us? It's a very dangerous thing. <laughs> I was here with a group of uh, I have all these kids from Catholic schools here, and I always try to explain to them that you can't intuit morality on your own. So, so Dennis Prager has this gig about the you know, dog falls into the, in, 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 into the lake. Who would you save, the person or the person you, the, you hate or the dog you love? So I used, like, I used Dennis Prager's uh, it's a great way, way to frame the issue, and I, I tell it to these kids. So one girl says, definitely the dog. <laughs> and she says, in fact, even if it wasn't the dog I love, I said, A, I appreciate your honesty. B, I'm terrified to hear you say that. Because if people are living by what feels good to them, or what seems right to them, who knows where we end up? Then we're on a terrible, terrible, slippery slope. I don't like to invoke images of Nazi Germany because that's, you know, everybody who wants to say something they don't like, you know, the first thing is a Nazi. But the truth is that's how the Nazis began. 
They began by rationalizing the lack of importance of human life. They euthanized. First thing wasn't Jews. They always hated the Jews. They got rid of undesirables. People who are mentally challenged, people who are what they called mongoloid, people who are just taking up hospital beds. Reasonable thing. It's a way to erase the national debt. Get rid of this burden. And you slowly but surely start to rationalize what is right and what, what feels good. So it can't be based on what we feel or what we think. The whole idea of fulfilling your mission on earth properly has to be based on following instructions. God. So does God tell us exactly what to do? The answer is yes, and most definitely no. He gives us mitzvahs. He gives us, we have a code of Jewish law, Shulchan Aruch. We have a vast Torah. But you know, like, every single detail can't be written in the Torah. You maybe will make ten decisions today, important decisions. Varying, varying importance. Why do I say important? Important because it's something that matters before the eyes of Hashem. Whether you ate the, the, the chocolate chip cookie with the white chocolate chips or the brown chocolate chips is not relevant. And therefore you really have no freedom of choice. That was preordained. But whether you eat the chocolate chip cookie that's kosher or the one that's not kosher, that's a choice. That's an important choice. How do I know it's an important choice? Because God gave you that choice. The concept of Bechira Chavshis, of freedom of choice, is an intrinsic part of the Jewish experience. You can't manufacture righteousness unless there exists the possibility, a very real possibility, of doing something wrong. So it all says in the Torah. It tells us exactly what to do. And it doesn't say anything of what we're supposed to do. There is that gray area. There's black and white. The Torah says this is black, it's wrong. The Torah says this is white, it's right. And where do we live for the most part? Not in the black and not in the white. We live in the area that's gray in the middle. And we have to navigate our way through difficult circumstances and situations. And by the way, it's very possible you can make mistakes. It's very possible. There's 613 commandments. <laughs> and you have to ask ourselves every situation. I have to compare it against my map. Here's my roadmap. My roadmap is my, my 613 mitzvahs. You know, uh, companies like to have a mission statement. Why do you have a mission statement? Because you have to go back to your mission statement on occasion. You have to look back at your mission statement and say, how does this jibe with this, this issue that's come up now? Does it fit with a mission statement or does it not fit with a mission statement? And oftentimes I would say, well, you know, it doesn't, but we're redoing the mission statement in that case. Fine. But if my mission statement comes from a higher source, then I have to go back and say, does it jibe with the mission statement or doesn't it? I give 630 mitzvahs. Does it fit in the framework of the mitzvahs or not? It sounds very easy. But a lot of times, the choice looks between one thing that looks right and something else that looks right. And arguments could be made that this is exactly what the Torah wants from you. And another, somebody could make the argument, no, the opposite is exactly what the Torah wants. That was Mordechai's dispute with his, with his fellow Jews. They said, we have to do what's necessary to preserve Jewish life. We need to ingratiate ourselves in the eyes of the king. We're in Galut now. We're in exile. What if the king is not going to like us? What if the king is going to try to hurt us? We're going to give him a pretext to prosecute us. He makes a party. We have to go. And Mordechai says, no. We don't do things which are not in the spirit of the Torah. If it's Shabbat, then it's Shabbat. I'm sorry, I can't come. But what's going to be? Hey, listen. If Shabbat you violate to save a life. 
this is a theory, a, a, a complicated explanation, a convoluted way to get. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. Who had clarity? Mordechai had clarity. The rest of the Jewish people didn't have clarity. Were they all ill-meaning? Did they want to rise up against God, destroy His Torah? Did they want to, the Jewish people not to exist anymore? If they did, then why would they be so concerned with being killed later? The Gezeira was only by Yehudim, as we're going to learn. Only against those who identify Jewishly. If they want to identify Jewishly, there's no problem. But you didn't have to get killed. Just I'm not Jewish. Leave me alone. I'm not, that's not me. I'm Phoenician. You're a Jewish Phoenician. Never heard of it. Nothing doing. <laughs> they tell a story of a fundraiser once came to somebody's house. And he said, uh, I'm here for an Adova. for a donation. The guy says, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not Jewish. And the fundraiser says, oh, well, we have a list over here It says you're Jewish. This list never lies. He says, I'm not Jewish. I'm not giving you a donation. The guy says, I'm not leaving you without a donation. I, I have to come with a donation. And this list says you're Jewish. <laughs> and you have to support us. And the guy said, look here. I'm not Jewish. And my father-in-law of Shalom wasn't Jewish either. <laughs> so so this, is, this is the big issue and the big question. And remember, See, this teaches us to look at the Megillah in a personal way. It's not just a, an Esther, somebody who once lived. Esther's me and you. And we learned the idea of Hadassah as Esther. That's the Neshama. See, this talks about the Neshama. There's the beautiful Neshama. There's the Hadassah of the Neshama. There's the Esther. There's the concealment. This is an Esther moment. It's not Hadassah acting. It's an Esther moment. It's, a, it's not clear. We don't have a straightforward clarity of exactly what has to be done. So where does Esther have to get her direction from? She has to now act on her own. She has to figure this out. Marika didn't tell her exactly what to do. She had to go back to the principles that she was raised with without having anybody to ask. And she had to work out exactly how she should respond in a particular situation. And she reaches for the Torah principles that Mordechai gave her. And those Torah principles are what stand in her stead and ultimately bring Geula, bring redemption for the whole world. You know, today is the eighth day of, of Adar, Adar Shani this year. The Rebbe once spoke an amazing sikha. He said, the virtue of the eighth day of Adar, namely, that on the seventh day of Adar, Moshe Rabbeinu passes on, and on that day, Yehoshua was, it says, a Shabashel Dezivgi, there were like two drivers in the seat. There was Moshe Rabbeinu, but all of a sudden, Yehoshua now had risen to prominence. But the first day that Yehoshua is on his own, is the eighth day of Adar. That's when Yehoshua now has to step up to the plate. Yehoshua is the most loyal disciple. And now, Yomish, <coughs> he's, he's, he's this, the chassid and the disciple of the humblest of people, and you can only imagine how humble he was, and nobody ever saw him with any kind of self-expression. All true and good. He was always the ultimate recipient of Moshe Rabbeinu's wisdom. And now, and now he has to become a leader. And now he has to step up to the plate. And therefore, there's something very special about today. Because it's all about the student rising to the level of teacher. In the language of Chassidus, the Tachten, the lower, the, 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 the part of created, the created entity, has to now rise up and perform the shlichus that God has given you. You become godly in a sense. You have to carry forth God's mission. And in a shlichus, you don't get everything handed to you on a silver platter. As the Rebbe used to say over in the name of his father-in-law, that uh, you want a malach to come and flap his wings at you? It doesn't work like that. You have to figure this out. The Rebbe sent shluchim all over. He didn't tell them exactly what to do. He gave them principles. 
immutable principles, axioms that you don't depart from. First and foremost, stick to the Shulchan Aruch. You never have to depart from the Shulchan Aruch. You have to love every single Yid. You have to see the value of a Yid. He gave us principles. How you're going to be able to work out your particular shlichut, that's your job. You're given kochot, you're given ability, but you're not told what to do exactly. So what's the Torah principle here? Clearly Esther must have had a Torah principle. She must have had something that she, she leaned on to give her guidance at this moment, which turned out to be a stunning moment in history. This is like a, a major, pivotal moment in the story. So that, that's where I think the, 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 the Mishnah comes in. The Mishnah seems to tell us that this is a basic Torah principle. Kala Omer Dover B'Shem Omer Mevi Okay. So the Rebbe asks on that Mishnah a very simple question. This idea of repeating a Torah teaching in the name of from whom you heard it, actually, it's not an elective. It's not a nice thing to do or a pious thing to do. It's a halacha. It's a halacha. The Mogad Avram gives a clear ruling in the Shulchan Aruch, the part of the codes which is known as Aruch Chaim, that ordained daily life to us. In chapter 156, Sifkatan 2, the Mogad Avram says, Shemisha Oimer Davar Shalei B'Shem Oimer. Oimre, somebody who says a teaching, but he does not say it in the name of its source, over Alav. He violates one of the 365 negative commandments of the Torah. Where is the source of that halacha? The source of the halacha is in the 22nd chapter of Medrash Tanchuma. That the Medrash says, Kol Omer, Davar B'Shem Omro, Alava, Kasav Omer, the person who says something that he heard from somebody else, but he doesn't say it in the name from whom he heard it. Al tigzal dol ki dolhu. Don't rob the person who is impoverished, who is poor, because they're poor. That's what we call today intellectual property. That's my idea. Don't take my idea. In modern terminology, we call it plagiarism. And plagiarism is a source of massive lawsuits today. You plagiarize my technology. You plagiarize my poetry. You plagiarize my music. Well, it's just music. It's not a tangible. Oh, yes, it is. The Western world today understands what the Medrash told us thousands of years ago. To plagiarize is not, that's not nice. It's illegal. It's illegal in Western law. It's in the source of it also in the Torah. The Torah says it's illegal. It's not a, how do you know you shouldn't steal? Because if, you, if you're honest with intellectual property, how do I know you shouldn't steal somebody's intellectual property? Because then you might bring redemption to the world. What? Because then I bring a de- redemption to the world? I can't steal intellectual property because it's wrong, because it's illegal. How does the story of Esther play into this? So the Rebbe explains the Mishnah in the following way. There's two ways a person could receive a teaching. One way is that exactly what's being said or given, you accept. So you have received a teaching from somebody else, and now you're simply repeating the teaching. That's called plagiarism. If you repeat, if you write somebody else's sentence and you, as your own writing, you're a plagiarist. You know, there's a guy named George Carlin. He's a very interesting writer. You see, you're all laughing. He writes the funniest things. He makes these funny observations. So what happens if somebody takes George Carlin's uh, writings and he writes it over by himself and starts posting on Facebook or whatever. He puts his own chachmalach out there. What will everybody say to him? You're a plagiarist. But what if he takes his ideas, 
George Carlin's like an out-of-the-box thinker. He's not linear. He, he thinks differently. He takes his ideas, and you work this idea, and as a result of this idea, it seeds an idea within you. And you develop a whole new understanding, a whole new perspective, a whole new way of articulating something. Where did the idea come from? Well, I, I took a Car George Carlin idea, and I developed it. Do I still have to say George Carlin? It's my idea. You know, I got the idea. He stimulated an idea. He got me thinking. So I'm, I'm using a metaphor that you can understand easily. But if somebody teaches a Torah teaching, and the Torah teaching stimulated a thought process, and you now have something to share, an idea, a, a perspective, a Torah perspective on something, do you have to say that I heard the teaching of such and such? And thinking about it, I came to this conclusion. Or it became clear to me. The answer is not required to do that. But it would be nice if you did. It would be nice if you did. Why? Because ultimately, the source, all of Torah has a source. All of Torah goes back, and we say, Kol Masha, Talmud, Vasek, that anything which a student who studies Torah with sincerity and with real integrity, anything, any news you bring to the table, any novelty, it's already Hakol Nitin Moshe Messina. The whole idea of Torah is, it's not my ideas. It's the Torah's ideas. I have the good fortune of carrying forth that idea. I have the good fortune of applying that idea, of putting it into in perhaps new language, of framing it in a certain way, so that people living in a certain milieu will be able to understand something because the, the, the language is cumbersome. The way it was presented a generation two or three or five ago doesn't, doesn't sing to people. They don't, they don't, they don't, it, doesn't like, it doesn't resonate. So the person is a true Torah scholar, he understands these ideas, and he's able to share them in a way that resonates with people. So, oh, wow, that, that's so original. Well, really not. So the truth is, he could say, yeah, it's original. Or he could say, this is not new. It's all B'Shem Omro. It, it all says already. One of the extraordinary things about our Rebbe's edited talks is the edited talks of the Rebbe have footnotes. And in the footnote, first and foremost, there are sources for everything. Every word that Rebbe said has a source. And it's almost as if the Rebbe is telling you, there's nothing new here. I'm just presenting to you what it says. When you read the Sicha, you read the talk, the edited talk, there's a profundity that leaps off the pages. Amazing. Maybe the Rebbe didn't see that it's so profound. He said, that, but that's what it says. He never hid the sources. Many scholars didn't give you sources for everything. I study the Achronim, the Pashtani HaMikra, whether it's a Kliyoka or a Chaim, I find all of their ideas in the Rishonim. And all the ideas in the Rishonim are already alluded to in the Chazal. If you study it properly, you can see the path it takes. You can see how what was articulated by the sages of the Mishnah in the time of the Medrash, how it's repeated in different contexts, how it's developed through the various Rishonim, and how the Achronim, how the later scholars apply and develop and promulgate and further the same ideas. It's the same ideas. I don't think I've yet found something which is remarkably, totally new in a Kliyakar or an Erechaim. And there shouldn't be anything new. It's new, it's not Teda. The whole idea of Teda, it's not. That's not Chas plagiarism. That's Teda. The Erechaim had this incredible gift. He had such a clarity with regard to Torah that he, and he knew all the whole Torah. And he knew everything our sages taught. And all the Rishayinim he knew. And it filters through in the most beautiful Rasphatic way. But there's no footnotes. It's a reality. Everything there was a footnote. Everything, everything, every little detail. And in fact, he began this already with the previous service talks. He wanted footnotes for everything. And people were opposed to this. Whoever heard of such a thing? 
Never heard of footnotes. Never heard of, of, of sources for everything. And the Rebbe's response was in the early 40s that if somebody will want to understand these words better, he needs to be able to look at the source. This is the essence of Torah. The essence of Torah is always to be able to trace it back. That's it's the greatest thing. That's not the least of, of, of the teaching. It's the greatest part of the teaching. If I'm telling you my ideas, it's no good. If I'm telling you the ideas that I was able to receive from all the great masters of Torah Shabbat then it's good. Then it's Torah. And this is something Esther absorbed in Mordechai's home. She was raised with this, with this honesty. She was raised with this importance of everything always has to be traced back to a source. So when Esther has her moment, Mordechai didn't tell her exactly what to say. She knows what has to be done. And that's, that's my understanding of this. That's how I, that's how I understand the Rebbe, the Rebbe, what the Rebbe is saying in the Sikha. The Rebbe in the Sikha explains the, the Mishnah. He explains the Mishnah. He explains why there's two elements. There's an, uh, Pirkei Avot is Lefini Mishur Sadin. It's beyond the letter of the law. It's, it's not what's required. It's what's almost elective, what we can choose to do, which is the notion and the designation of piety, going beyond the call of duty. And the Rebbe's question is that it's a halacha. It's a law in Shulchan Aruch. His explanation is that there are two levels. There's a time when it's required, and there's a time when it's an elective. So it seems to me that that's the point that the Megillah is making here. And that's ultimately what it's all about. Remember we had the teaching last week, it's Megillah's Esther. Because Esther took the inspiration from Mardachai, but in the end, Esther made it her own. And when she makes it her own, it becomes your action. It becomes your choice. And, and you know what? Just doing the right thing even when it's not required, even when it's beyond the letter of the law, it could be redemption. It did for Esther. So let's finish off the, the, the Patek now. What happens? The, mes the message comes through to Ahasuerus, Vayivuka Shadavar. They look into it. Matters investigated. Vayimotzei, and they found. Found. Translated, it's verified. It's corroborated. They were both hung on the gallows. This becomes written in the book of Chronicles, before the king. So, first things first, let's, let's take a look and see uh, what Rashi says. What was written? What was written? Was written that there's a plot against Akashverosh? Who cares? No, Rashi says, What was written was, and Mordechai did something special for the king. Which is actually very interesting. In the Chronicles, it would say there was an attempt at assa an assassination attempt against the king. By the way, a king who, who survives an assassination attempt emerges usually stronger, not weaker. Perpetrators are caught, they're hung, everybody's terrified. So, Achashverosh, it was all about Achashverosh, should record that they try to get me, I got them first. Why would he want to give credit? But amazingly, it's recorded, Hatova That's what's recorded. Vayitolu, Ibn Ezra says, Vayitolu is like singular. Should say, should say plural. He says, no, kalachad mishneim. Each one of them was hung individually, and, and, and therefore, that, that's how, that, that's the verbiage that we use. what did they seek out? So the Gemara and Megillah and Afyud Gimel tells us like this. Bigson and Teresh were Tarsium. Tarsim means they're from a place called Tarsus, or Tar, Tar, Tarsus. They spoke Tarsian. 
The Omrim, they said, Miyom, Shabbat, Zu, from the day this one came, this Esther, we don't have a day of rest, as I mentioned to you before. So therefore, they said, one gave the idea to the other, let, let, let's kill the king. So the problem was, We don't have the same watch. We're not here at the same time. I'll stay on for your watch too. So big son said to Teresh, don't worry, I'll stay on for you. And then we're going to do this together. But they don't know that Mordechai speaks all these languages. So well, the first thing we see, is what did they see? Mordechai said that there's going to be an assassination attempt. What did they see all of a sudden? Big son and Teresh are together at the same time. Hey, it's true. What are they both doing here? So that was the most easy thing to investigate, was to see that they were both there, and that's exactly what Mordechai had, the message Mordechai had passed on. So instantaneously, the plot now was corroborated. It became obvious, it became clear. In the, in the, in the, in the Midrashim, it's very, very look, interesting details uh, over here uh, of what exactly the, they found. So the Medrash Panam Achedim says that the, the um, as I mentioned earlier, that they found the snake. Found the snake there. So it was very obvious, because how do you tell poison? Poison could be odorless and poison could be colorless. How, how would you know? But a snake is a snake. And furthermore, they discovered they found a dagger on one of them. So this is, this is subsequently recorded in the name of Mordechai. Let's go to the Malbum. Let's go to the Malbum here. The Malbum says, what was, what was investigated? What was found? He says they found the actual poison. The actual poison. Hasam Shiratsulamise. The potion was found on, one of the, on their person. And he says, the Malbum says, that would be a real miracle. Because why would they be so stupid to walk around the poison in the pocket? You got to do this smart. You don't walk around with the evidence on your person. But they did. So therefore, this further underscores how everything was so miraculous. All of these things shouldn't have been the way they were, and all of them were exactly as they were, and so Mordechai gets full credit. And the Malbum says something fascinating. He says... This was an unbelievable stroke of divine providence that Achashverosh did not remunerate Mordechai in any way. Normally, the king doesn't want to owe favors. So therefore, the king, and especially Achashverosh, was known to take care of people. He would right away give her a, a command, take care of him, pay it off, and that's all. And if he would have written it in the book in the name of Mordechai, in the, in the public chronicles, in the you know, equivalent of the official records of the Senate, so he said there was no backup in those days. Haman would go and erase it. Haman knows it says something good about Mordechai. Haman would have easily gone back to those records and he would have falsified the records or removed that parchment. So later it couldn't be used against him. But it doesn't just say it was written because of Besefer. It was It was recorded in the king's private chronicles. So Haman didn't have access to this. Not only Haman didn't have access, Haman didn't even know it existed. Because these were the private chronicles of Ahasuerus. And that's what's so unusual here. That's what's so unique over here. And, and since it's in his private archives, it's not so simple to falsify. That you get into those archives. It's a very dangerous thing to do. Even if they would have known it's written there. And for this reason, that, that in and of itself is a portion of the miracle. 
the Mevukash Adava. And there was a, there was a, they were caught red-handed. With, 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 with the, with, 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 they found that, according to the Medrash, they found a dagger. They saw everything right there. And that it should be written down, but not written down as you would have expected it to be written down. In a way that with certainty is going to be preserved. The Alshech, he says, um, something very interesting about this whole, uh, the, 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 the way that it's written down. The, the, the whole notion of, of the king recording a favor that he would owe to somebody was contrary to the personality of Ahasuerus. <laughs> he would have rewarded, fine. What would he keep a record of that for? It doesn't, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't do anything good for him. He himself was no lover of the Jews. Why would he want to keep a record that it was a Jew who saved his life? The whole, the, it's like this whole verse shouldn't have happened. All of the things we learned about today shouldn't have been as they were. What, of course, is the lesson? That the Yad Hashem is ever-present. And that's really the story of the Megillah. And we see how we go through, detail by detail, story by story, sequence by sequence, everything is put in place for the great miracle, the salvation of Purim to happen. And the lesson that I will leave you with is that we have to understand that everything that happens in our lives is Hashgach HaPratis. Our challenge is to act to do what the right thing is, which is oftentimes not going to be clear, but to revert back to the principles of the Torah, and as a result, to utilize the opportunities that the Almighty gives us to bring Geula of Yeshua, to bring about redemption for our people. May we merit Geula of Yeshua, just like it was in those days, it should also be in today's day and age, we should merit the final Geula, the coming of Mashiach Tzidkenu, Amen.